It's Monday, August 20th, and this is The Daily Dive. The president is once again railing against the New York Times for the news that White House counsel Don McGahn is cooperating extensively with the Robert Mueller investigation. McGahn's testimony is particularly important because he was involved in many of the events being investigated and is setting up the mindset of the president during his decisions. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and more on the security clearance revolt around John Brennan. Next, school is back in session, but some kids are still getting an extra day off. One of Colorado's largest school districts is switching over to a four-day school week. Officials say it is a cost-cutting measure and the district can save upwards of $1 million. Nicole Brady, anchor and reporter for Denver 7, joins us to talk about what the new school week will look like and if there's more districts in the country that might be turning to this new schedule. Finally, as more states are legalizing marijuana for both medicinal and recreational uses, a new job industry is blooming. Ohio, set to open its doors to medical marijuana sales later this year, are already looking for bud tenders, bud trimmers, cannabis chefs, and master growers. Randy Tucker, reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, joins us for how much you can make in these jobs and the type of credentials you might need. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm not going to be rushed into having him testify so that he gets trapped into perjury. And when you tell me that, you know, he should testify because he's going to tell the truth and he shouldn't worry. Well, that's so silly because it's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. He didn't have a, a conversation. Truth is about, truth. I, I don't mean to go like. I, no, I it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. So the New York Times had an article that was talking about White House counsel Don McGahn and how he's extensively cooperated in the Mueller investigation that drew the ire of the president. He tweeted out the failing New York Times again, saying he's not turning on me. He's not some type of rat. I gave him all the permission to cooperate with the investigation. What else do we know about this? We learned in the New York Times this weekend that Don McGahn extensively has cooperated, has sat for hours of interviews with special prosecutor investigation Mueller and his team, and that he talked in great detail about what President Trump said and did around the time that they fired Comey, who was then the head of the FBI. This is really shocking. You don't normally see a subject of an investigation's office attorney show up and give interviews. President Trump has insisted that this is him trying to be transparent, trying to be forthcoming. He himself has said several times he would happily sit for interviews, but it is looking quite unusual. And there is some suggestion that this happened because, in part, McGahn and his attorney, Burke, were afraid that he was sort of being set up, that the president and his allies were setting Don McGahn up for being taking the blame for, for any possible accusations of obstruction of justice. Yeah, he sat for about 30 hours of interviews, which is, that is a lot, but he's the point guy. I mean, he was there for a lot of the big moments that Mueller is investigating. They're saying that it's not all bad testimony. Some of it favored the president, but he was there for the decision around the firing of James Comey, the decision around firing Michael Flynn, his relationship with Jeff Sessions, all that stuff. And Don McGahn is just kind of framing the mindset of what the president was going through at that time. And this is all related to the obstruction of justice. 
It's important to remember here, Don McGahn was an attorney in Washington, D.C., became the attorney for the Trump campaign when the campaign was over, went into the White House. But he's not Donald Trump's personal attorney in this capacity. The New York Times wrote that Trump thought that McGahn would be acting as if he were Trump's personal attorney, but he's not. He represents the White House. He represents the executive branch. He represents an institution much more than just a single president. And when President Trump opted not to use executive privilege to prevent McGahn from being asked questions. It left everything open for him to be able to talk about that he had seen, heard, and done in his time in the White House. How do they pin it on Don McGahn, though, that the obstruction is his fault? McGahn was a part of the decision-making process. He is there to counsel. It would be particularly difficult, I think, to blame him as executing obstruction of justice. However, it wouldn't be the first time somebody got blamed for something their boss did. And I think that was part of the concern. Let's move on to John Brennan and the administration revoking his security clearance. The intelligence community has come and supported him. I think there was two letters that were circulated where a bunch of former CIA directors for all the past presidents signed on, and they're just saying that they are not comfortable with the president taking away his security clearance. I, in fact, spoke to one of those former CIA directors last week who was telling me that if this were for national security reasons, if this was being taken because Brennan had done something that put the nation's security at risk, that would be one thing. But this is being done for purely political reasons. It's being done because the president doesn't like the things that Brennan has said on cable news about him. And this former CIA director really expressed to me the importance of why former directors maintain their clearance. And that's not so that they can show up at the CIA and say, hey, tell me everything about uh, what's currently happening in Libya or Syria or Russia. It's so that if there are cases that they worked on, if there are issues that they're familiar with and the CIA needs their help, they can go to them. And whenever you take someone's clearance away like that, you're essentially taking a tool away from the CIA that they're no longer able to go to an expert and get advice. Being critical of the president is not grounds to lose your clearance. Have you were divulging secrets or saying things Things that were endangering Americans, that would be something different. Right. But I think everybody not. would agree at that point. The uh, trial of Paul Manafort is still ongoing. The jury is in deliberations right now. You actually got a shout out in the LA Times coverage about it. Everybody's waiting to see what's going on. And they're saying inside the courtroom, reporters read books, battled crossword puzzles, one played solitaire. And that was you. That was me. That's right. We can't have any electronics in the building. No cell phones, no computers. Can't even bring your Kindle in. So I went a little old school. I brought a deck of cards and I spent a Friday afternoon waiting for the jury playing good old fashioned solitaire. Is there a sense that later on today that they will have some type of a decision? There is a sense that they could have a decision today. It's really not wise to try to read anything into time it takes a jury to deliberate as to what it means for their verdict. If it goes past Monday or Tuesday, you might start to wonder if they're deadlocked or they're starting to be confused about some of these charges. But they left early on Friday, returned early on Monday morning to start deliberations. This is a pace we would expect with a case this complicated with this many charges. Have you got a chance to see this famous Paul Manafort glare, the one that he was giving Rick Gates and just everybody says he's got like the stare from hell? 
He does have a stare. I wasn't in the courtroom for most of the trial. However, I covered the 2016 campaign. I talked to Paul Manafort sometimes every day during that campaign, during the convention. I saw him in the courtroom on Friday morning, and I can't help but notice that it appears to have taken a toll on him. It is worn on him. It has aged him. And I think the reality of what he faces is imminently clear to him. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're hoping that this new schedule is going to allow teachers to collaborate more, which we totally believe um, contributes to student achievement. Joining us now is Nicole Brady, anchor and reporter for Denver 7. So we're going to be talking about this new thing going on in some Colorado school districts. This is something that I would have loved when I was a kid going to school, a four-day school week. And they're doing it on the right day. They're taking Monday off. They're going to be starting Tuesday and going all the way through Friday. And the districts are saying that this is really something that they can use to save a lot of money, actually. What do we know about this four-day school week, Nicole? Like you said, they're taking off Mondays in the 27J district, which here in the Denver area covers a couple of uh, counties and communities uh, it, just in the north metro area. This is a small district of about 17,000 students, but the largest district in Colorado so far to try this and probably one of the largest in the country doing this right now, as most of the districts that have gone to four day are pretty small rural districts. It's four days off Mondays. The school day, Tuesday through Thursday, is then a little bit longer so that they can still meet the minimum hourly requirements for the state, which in Colorado is uh, just over a thousand hours a year for high school and middle school and a little bit under that for elementary school. Yeah, they get about 40 minutes a day extra, which isn't so bad. It's not too big of a deal. Uh, and it's It the- doesn't seem like it would make that big of a, a difference to yeah. the school day. Yeah, that would feel too much longer. And it's the 98th district in the state that's actually moving to a shorter schedule like this. The superintendent there says they hope to save about a million dollars on busing, teacher salaries, and utilities. That's some good savings, I guess, right? For a small district, yeah, a million dollars is significant. And a lot of that is the transportation costs, a huge chunk of that, plus a little bit on on salary. And then, as you said, the electricity, the utilities, the food, the service. And they will still have school buildings open, though, because they'll be offering daycare at these elementary schools on Mondays for the parents who need it. They have to pay $30 per day per child for that daycare. I would imagine that would have, that was probably a top concern for a lot of parents because they're expecting for the children to be gone for hours at a time every day during the week so they can go to work and such. And that would be a big burden on them. But $30 a month comparably to other child care services probably is a pretty decent deal there. Even for a full day, $30 is pretty good because that's up to 12 hours if you need it, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. I don't know many day uh, cares that are that inexpensive. So, no, it is a good deal for those working parents and the ones we spoke to seem to be okay with that payment. Probably uh, besides just the money, it was uh, just the concern of getting the kids out of the routine and having to do something different with them on Mondays and figuring out how to handle that day. There's uh, about 550 districts nationwide in about 25 states that are currently doing this. So it's not terribly huge. It, to my knowledge, it seems like more of a new thing. Nicole, you're, you're a parent. Has your school district talked about this stuff or, uh, you know, does this really seem like a trend that we'll be picking up? 
I will be very interested to see if it becomes a trend in bigger school districts. So here, uh, I have a parent in the Douglas County School District, uh, which is one of the state of Colorado's larger districts, about 30-some thousand kids compared to the the 27J district, which I said was 17,000. So no talk of it happening in any of the larger districts yet. Obviously, that would affect more people, more parents, more students. I don't see that being the primary way that, that districts would try to solve some of their budgetary problems. Although, you know, if we see a fair, you know, a fair size district like this doing it, and then we see one maybe a little bigger deciding, hey, maybe we should look at that. Uh, we could potentially, I suppose, see some kind of effect. One study that I saw said that the savings were relatively minimal for what most districts could expect to save. So I'm not sure it's the best way to try and save money for a district. And if it comes down to that, then then maybe it won't won't become a trend. Right. And in this case, specifically, they're saying that that's what they're trying to do, some cost saving measures. Right. So we'll see. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of a lot of eyes on the district and see how it develops. Absolutely. I, I, I think. Throughout this year, we'll be asking, how are the students doing? How is the budget looking? Were te- did teachers stay? Did you, did you recruit any new teachers? Did more show interest in wanting to come to a, a district that offers a four-day work week? Those are all questions we'll be asking. Nicole Brady, anchor and reporter for Denver 7. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. We have entrepreneurs creating everything from vapors to CBD oils to um, lotions. There's web design. There's being a bookkeeper. There's distribution. Joining us now is Randy Tucker, reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer. As more and more states are beginning to legalize marijuana, both medically and recreationally, it's creating a new industry. Uh, More jobs are opening up. There in Ohio specifically, medical marijuana is going to be starting later this year. It'll be available later this year, not recreationally just yet. But Randy, tell us about some of these jobs that are opening up. My favorite one, first off, I just have to say, is a a bud tender. That might be my favorite job title, too, just because of uh, the uh, reference to... uh bartending right uh you know the jobs are similar in the respect that uh, they want you to have uh, good social skills and uh, be able to develop a positive rapport with customers you know a lot of whom are you know probably is unfamiliar with the product since it is a new product offering and a new industry in the state many of the um, medical cannabis patients will be unfamiliar with the properties and uh, characteristics that dispensaries will be selling, and they'll be relying on the bud tenders <laughs> to uh, convey those messages in a uh, high touch. We're out here in Los Angeles, and I've been into a few uh, medical marijuana dispensaries and whatnot. And, and in a way, these bud tenders are kind of the most important piece. It's their job to upsell you and tell you what you want and, and, and you know, any questions that the consumer might have they're the first people that are going to be answering that. It's not like a pharmacy where you're going to get too technical. They're just going to tell you how each little thing is going to make you feel. But beyond bud tenders, I mean, there's a lot of jobs that are open for people in this new industry. Uh, Chefs, you need flavor scientists, people that are extraction technicians, master growers. Run through some of those other job opportunities that are uh, opening up in this new industry. Well, edible chefs, for instance, or cannabis chefs, if you rather prefer to call them that, uh, that's a um, entirely new uh, field for uh, 
people with culinary background. It requires a little science because you have to um, be able to extract the right amount of oils that concentrate from cannabis that state law allows you to infuse in different edibles. But the highest paid chefs can earn up to six figures or more are those that are the best at masking uh, the taste of cannabis, the THC in cannabis. So the edibles are not only uh, potent, but delicious. (laughs) And then uh, master growers also very in demand. I mean, these are the people that are adept at growing the plants properly on a big scale for commercial purposes. And these guys can make six figures also. Right. Or more. And I I would say, you know, based on my research that uh, master growers are probably the most coveted employees in the uh, cannabis industry. It's pretty simple to learn how to uh, grow cannabis, the basics of growing cannabis, but to be able to cultivate tons and tons of cannabis consistently over time requires some experience and, uh, special knowledge and techniques. If you have that, you can basically set your own standard in terms of pay and uh, benefits. We know this. There's a ton of money in in, in the industry. It's uh, worth multi-millions of dollars. Even on the entry level, going back to the bud tenders, you can start out making 12 to $15 an hour. And what I thought was kind of interesting, it's your first step to becoming a store manager and you can get about 40 grand a year for that. So that's, I mean, you know, for people starting out, that's pretty good. It can be. There are a lot of entry-level jobs. There are a lot of ways to get into the business with no uh, formal education or training. You know, bud tender would be one of those uh, positions. Dispensaries are just looking for someone who's good with people and smart enough to uh, be able to talk about the benefits of the products they sell with their customers. There are also jobs like bud trimmers who basically uh, trim the uh, excess foliage off of marijuana buds until they save the most potent part for sale. All of those jobs can get you in the door, cause the new industry, and the training is pretty much on the job. It can open doors to becoming store managers or even assistant growers, manage, uh, master growers. And, and some of these other jobs require, you know, if you want to be a master grower, you might have to have a degree in horticulture, or if you want to be an extraction technician, you might need a, some type of science degree. Where would you get some of this training? I, I saw in your article, you spoke to somebody at the Cleveland School of Cannabis. Yes, there are a couple of schools. Well, now, the Cleveland School of Cannabis is a technical school that has a few certificate programs that introduce you to the industry and familiarize you with operations. The training, though, that you need for some of the higher paying positions like master growers will require you to actually go to a bachelor's degree or a PhD from an accredited college in chemistry, biology, horticulture, one of those disciplines. So there is some training available on a basic level at schools like the Cleveland School of Cannabis, but they're really most uh, cannabis companies are looking for people with experience working in labs, scientists with advanced degrees, technicians to fill some of those higher paying jobs. At the end of your article, you do mention a couple of things to know. The two that really caught my eye were, one, federal labor laws don't apply to a lot of these places. So if you're looking for health insurance and benefits, maybe not the right place. And the last one, (laughs) which is pretty good, you might think you're a shoe in for the job because of your experience on the black market for so many years, but a lot of these places don't want to hear anything about that. Well, you know, that's what I've heard. I think there's a perception out there, uh, a stereotype that people working in the cannabis industry are ex-hippies or stoners who <laughs> right. uh, found their dream job working for these firms. 
but most of the companies that I've spoken to that are opening up shop in Ohio, they're looking for mature professional candidates who will be the face of a serious business, especially here in Ohio where cannabis for recreational use isn't legal yet. The medical marijuana dispensaries are looking for people who will present a very professional and polished profile to their customers. Well, it's on its way to Ohio later this year, so we'll see how this emerging industry takes place and how many jobs we end up getting out of it. Randy Tucker, reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.